Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, I'm talking to Garth Greenwell about his latest book of fiction, Cleanness. Garth Greenwell is the author of What Belongs to You, which won the British Book Award for Debut of the Year, was long-listed for the National Book Award, and was a finalist for six other awards, including the Penn Faulkner Award and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. A New York Times book review, Editor's Choice, it was named the best book of 2016 by more than 50 publications in nine countries, and is being translated into a dozen languages. His fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, A Public Space and Vice, and he has written criticism for The New Yorker, The London Review of Books and The New York Times Book Review, among other publications. And today we're going to be talking about Garth's latest book, Cleanness, which is out now in the UK. Garth, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Now, normally at the beginning of an interview about fiction, I always say to the author, how would you describe the book? And it seems particularly pertinent in this case. What belongs to you, I've seen described as a novel. Cleanness, I've seen described as a collection of stories. But both things are really a continuation of each other. How would you how would you describe them? Yeah, so, you know, the usual labels that we put on books of fiction, neither of them, neither novel nor book of stories felt really right for this book. So Picador has published it at Like My US Publisher just as a book of fiction without a label. And I'm happy for people to talk about it however they like. For me, you know, my first training in art was in music. I was an opera singer. That's what I studied at university. And to me, in a perfect world, I could call it a song cycle. That's actually kind of the model that seems truest to me. And has that dictated the um, or influenced the structure of the, particularly this second book, which has got nine stories as opposed to three? Yeah, that's right. So there are nine chapters divided into three larger sections. And, you know, I think of each of the chapters as like uh, they're self-enclosed scenes. There are narratives that arc across them. They all have the same narrator. They inhabit the same world. I think of each chapter as a kind of node of intensity, and then it's placed in relationship to the other chapters. And so you have these nine sort of nodes, and what connects them isn't so much like novelistic cause and consequence of plot or chronology, but instead things like key change or texture or motif. And that's why 
you know, like the, the song cycles that I grew up singing, like Schubert or, or Schumann or, or Brahms, these are, that's really the model that made most sense to me as I was writing what I used as a kind of guide. And I wanted to talk about, I guess, the style of the book. It has a, a first person unnamed narrator who is basically doing something with his life that career-wise that you did yourself he's even he even talks at various points about being into opera and the book if i remember correctly apart from mitko a major character in in the first book nobody else is ever named the other people that appear in the book are always initialized so it has the feel of perhaps memoir but also a journal because the, the the narrator does talk at various times of of having written a journal in the past and i wonder to what extent have people confused this with autobiography oh it happens all the time and it was clear to me from the very first pages of writing what belongs to you that what i was writing was not autobiography that it was fiction but, you know, of course, I am playing with a kind of reality effect. And it's true that a lot of the, you know, external fact checkable information about the narrator and the situation he's in. He's an American high school teacher living and working in Sofia, Bulgaria. I also did that. So a lot of that information matches with me. And obviously, I'm playing with that. And everyone, every character in the book, to the extent that they're named, they're named either by initials or by nicknames. And that includes Mikko. Mikko is actually a diminutive of, of Demeter, which is the most common Bulgarian male name. So that's even that is kind of barely a name and in the new book there are also nicknames but no one no one has a kind of proper name and one of the things that interests me is sort of trying to write a book that's exploring intimacy and i do think that intimacy is kind of the deep subject of cleanness and what it's like to do that while also exploring questions of anonymity what intimacy is like when it's unmoored from the usual structures we associate with intimacy. And in part, that's because, you know, the book is interested in cruising and interested in um, sexual communities that gay men form in which anonymity often plays a part. And then it's also interested in confession. And many of the chapters, the narrator is a high school teacher, and in several chapters, he interacts with students or he interacts with friends who tell him some sort of very carefully guarded or secret. And, you know, I hope that one of the effects of not naming the characters is to give a sense of sort of being respectful of that, of, of sort of acknowledging that secrecy and allowing that secrecy to serve, I hope, to kind of intensify the sense of intimacy. So in one of the ways has this book, uh, because again, it, it's a, a direct continuation of what belongs to you in terms of it's the same narrator, um, there are certain recurring characters, and he's in pretty much the same situation that he was work-wise in that book. What else have you done with cleanness to sort of develop what you were doing in the earlier book? Yeah, so, you know, the books don't stand in, like, they are autonomous books. They're separate. They're independent. One is not a sequel or, sequel or a prequel of the other. And readers don't have to read what belongs to you in order to read cleanness or vice versa. But they do intermingle in the ways that you say. Um, one of the things that I understood very early on writing What Belongs to You was that, you know, What Belongs to You is a book that is about an obsessive relationship. And I knew that the book needed to be 
sort of as obsessively focused on the two men at its heart, you know, as the narrator is obsessively focused on Miku. And so I knew that it had to be a very streamlined container and that there were all sorts of things in the world of the book, in the world of the narrator that didn't fit into what belongs to you. And one of the reasons that that felt, you know, bearable to me was that I knew that there was going to be another container, another book. And cleanness is, to my mind, a much bigger book than what belongs to you, not in terms of pages, but in terms of its mobility, the number of places it goes, um, the number of characters it contains. And then also, I hope it's a bigger book than what belongs to you in terms of its emotional range. The narrator sort of experiences a wider range of emotional experience and of kinds of relationships in this book than in what belongs to you. I mean, I would certainly recommend anybody that was going to read Cleanless to read what belongs to you it not only is it is it brilliant but um there are definite resonances i mean the very first story obviously in cleanness i think if you've read the background the, the story in what belongs to you where the narrator talks about his own first love then that story has a much deeper resonance i think right i think that's true too yeah I want to talk about Bulgaria and we'll just sort of, again, inevitably include both your own experiences and the narrator of this stories. But I just wanted to to give us a bit of sense about what it is like to be living in Bulgaria, teaching as an expat at the time that you were you were doing so, I guess. Tell us something about the place. Yeah, so I moved to Bulgaria in 2009 um, and I lived there for four years. So from 2009 to 2013. And I went there for a job. I did not have any connection to Bulgaria. To my shame, before interviewing for the job, I don't think I could have found Bulgaria on a map, um, like a lot of Americans, I'm sure. And I was shocked by a couple of things. I was shocked, one, by um, the intensity of my emotional reaction to the place. I just fell in love with Sofia, um, which remains my favorite city in the world. And I fell in love with the language and worked very hard to learn the language and to be able to engage with Bulgarian literature and to be able to have conversations with people who didn't speak English, as of course a lot of people do in Sofia. But one of the sort of primary ways that I got to know the city was through queer communities and through cruising. And a lot of the people that I met in, say, cruising environments were not people who would have access to English. And so knowing Bulgarian, I was able to have relationships with people whom I wouldn't have been able to have otherwise. And then the second thing that really shocked me, so in addition to my emotional response to the place, was the extent to which I was reminded in this place that in many ways felt very foreign to me, um, the extent to which I was a, I was reminded of the place um, from which I come, of Kentucky in the early 90s, the place where I grew up. And, you know, I think one of the reasons that that happened, that you know, in this place that's so far away from Kentucky, I found it impossible not to think about Kentucky, was that uh, was my relationship with my high school students. I was the only openly queer person in my in my school community. And that and for most of my students, I was the only openly queer person they had ever met in real life. And that meant that students who knew they were queer came to talk to me. And as they told me their stories, you know, I had this vertiginous feeling that they were telling me my own story and that in some way the horizon of possibility drawn across the lives of my Bulgarian students in Bulgaria in the 20 teens very much resembled what I felt was my own horizon of possibility in the early 90s in Kentucky. So 
you know, I think both books to a very great degree come out of that weird point of contact between, you know, this place that in some sense seems about as far as you could get from Kentucky. And then the place that I think I spent much of my adult life um, and adolescent life even uh, really running away from. What's the situation for the queer community in Bulgaria now? Well, so I I left Bulgaria in 2013, and um, I went back every year that I was working on the book for one to two months, um, but have not been back in the last couple of years, and things are changing very quickly, so I wouldn't want to speak to the situation now. Between 2009 and 2013, I saw an extraordinary and very brave group of queer activists make extraordinary gains for queer people. And as someone who participated in that community, you know, I watched like the Pride Parade, which only began in 2008, the year before I arrived, watched it sort of double in size every year and this sense of real progress. And then in 2012, 2013, there was a sense of huge pushback to that. Much of it, I think, inspired by Putin and Putin's campaign against what he called, quote unquote, gay propaganda. And when I left in 2013 and my sense going back each year after that until 2018, my sense was that Bulgaria and queer people in Bulgaria and the gains made for queer rights in Bulgaria were at a very perilous moment. And there was a sense, and I think this is true across the region, and more and more this is true in my own country and anywhere queer people have made political gains, it feels like those gains are very very much in peril and that they could very easily be lost. Indeed, there's the story in this book, um, In Cleanness, uh, called Decent People, which is set during that time. There's political upheaval in the country and I guess it's that sort of, you know, Occupy Wall Street, Arab Spring type sort of era of the of the first sort of social media revolutions that were going on around the world. And it feels very almost bitter that there's a um a group of lgbt activists taking part in the um in that wider protest who are basically being attacked by other people yeah that's right and there's a real sense of betrayal in that story you know there's a that the the riot or not riot the the protest the march that the narrator takes part in as an observer as a foreigner who wants to watch who wants to sort of experience something that his students have been experiencing and talking about. You know, there's a sense of real joy and of real possibility and of real hope and a sense of, you know, a country's citizenry, you know, wanting to reclaim the nation from a very corrupt government. And then there is a huge sense of betrayal when, you know, this sort of seeming uh, ideal nation of idealistic engaged citizens, elements of that, uh, of that body attack these queer activists who are just marching with signs that sort of proclaim the value of queer lives. There is a sense that, you know, these, the politics of our moment are incredibly complicated and incredibly complicated for queer people. And it is very hard to know where one's allies are. The nine stories in cleanness, they move backwards and forwards in time to a certain extent. They're not all linear. And that often reminded me of just memories, I guess, that just appear sort of unbidden to the narrator who's who's relaying these stories to us. And I wanted to talk about how did the nine stories in this in this collection come together in what order, I guess. Well, so um, they were definitely not written in the order in which they appear. The chapters, well, what I knew about the structure 
early on was that I knew that at the heart of it, I wanted to tell a particular story. And the three central chapters of the book do tell a linear story with a beginning, middle, and an end that is a love story about a relationship between the narrator and another foreigner, a Portuguese man named R. And this is an experience of love that is transformative for the narrator. It's a kind of love everything in his life had taught him, was foreclosed to him, was not available to him. And the experience sort of just radically transforms his sense of his life and of what he is capable of feeling and, and, you know, what other people are capable of, what someone else is capable of feeling about him. So I knew that I wanted that to be the heart of the book and that I wanted those chapters, I wanted that story to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. I also knew that by the time the reader reached those central chapters, I wanted them to know the whole course of the relationship. I wanted them to know that the relationship had ended, that the narrator had been devastated by its ending. And in some sense, the book is about you know that central relationship, but then also how do you make sense of a world? How do you navigate a world that has been transformed by an experience of love that you've lost? And so the first and third sections are not organized chronologically. They're instead organized almost as a kind of palindrome or a kind of mirror, a kind of mirror structure where there are pairs of stories that I hope speak to each other and form kinds of bonds, but that, you know, the relationship between them is dramatically affected by the fact that there is this love story in the center. And so that's one reason, you know, the kind of intensity of that structure is one reason why, you know, a label like story collection doesn't quite feel right to me. You know, I don't think generally story collections are organized in quite that way. But when I think about a song cycle like Schubert's Winterreise, that is my feeling. And the way that songs in that cycle um, speak to each other, echo each other, can only be understood in the light of each other. That was the structure I was hoping for. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
you're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Garth Greenwell, and we're talking about his latest book, Cleanness. And Garth, I'd like to start us off in the second half talking about that title. It's the title of one of the pieces in the book, but also, I think, a theme that's looked at in many different ways across the book. Tell us something about the title. Yeah, so this idea of cleanness, you know, I'm interested in categories that we use and especially oppositions that we use to try to organize and make sense of our lives. And it seems to me that one opposition that plays an especially large role in our sense of our moral and our sexual lives, and perhaps this is even more intensely true for gay men, is the idea of cleanness and filth. And for a queer person, that can mean an awful, that can mean a lot of different things. Um, One of the first questions that's often asked in an internet chat room is, are you clean? Which means, are you HIV positive? There's also the question of, like, I'm fascinated by what it means when we talk about people, about bodies, about places, about sexual acts as clean or unclean. The narrator sort of, well, I'll say, It is just my temperament when I look at human life to see a series of double binds. And one of the most powerful double binds in the narrator's life is this sense, this desire to want to be clean and a desire to want to bathe in filth. And I wanted in the book to trouble any easy notions of what either of those terms means. So any easy notion that would associate, say, monogamy with cleanness and, you know, sort of cruising with filthiness. I wanted to trouble that dichotomy and suggest the ways in which these easy divisions break down. You know, I wanted to think about what it would mean if it's true for many people, or if it's part of the human equipment, that there is something in us that longs for cleanness, that longs for purity. And there is also something in us that longs for filth, you know, whole systems of moral thought, of legality, of religion have been erected on the idea that the only way to resolve that dilemma is to radically suppress half of what we desire, to sort of radically repress our desire for filth. Well, that seems to me just obviously a recipe for disaster. What if instead we tried to find a structure for a life that could, instead of attempting to repress half of our human equipment, instead tries to find a structure that could accommodate these contradictions that make us what we are. And, you know, in some sense, the ways that the book constantly interrogates ideas of cleanness, ideas of filth, ideas of purity, ideas of mixture is about that. It's about trying to find a life that will accommodate as much of the contradictory fullness of what it means to be human as possible. And indeed, the narrator has not, you know, been able to sort of come to terms with his own desires. His desires are often uncontrollable, perhaps might be the word, but also, you know, he fights constantly with his own feelings of of guilt about some of the desires that he has. Let's talk about the exploration of the idea of desire in the book. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's true that the narrator, you know, feels a great deal of or feels a kind of residue of shame about desire. And he certainly feels a kind of shame about the intensity of his desires and the extent to which he feels subject to his desires. He feels that his desires 
sort of tyrannize him. He feels that his desires take agency away from him. You know, one of the things I wanted to think about in the book, uh, my narrator is someone who grew up in a place where he received a single lesson about his life, which was that his life lacked value and that his life lacked dignity. In Kentucky in the early 90s, um, the pre-internet American South, you know, the only narratives available for what a gay man's life could look like were molesting children and dying of AIDS. My narrator has spent decades immersed in queer activism. He knows that those lessons are false, but he will never get to be someone who was not shaped by those lessons. There's an idea in queer communities that I think there's a kind of rhetoric of pride that is very important and life-giving, but that can also become coercive. And that can suggest that this sort of shame that has shaped us, this shame that we've rejected, that it is something that we have to strive to sort of clean ourselves of, that there is some authentic self that predates that shame, that if we can just scrub away the shame, we will arrive at this authentic true self. I think that that's false. And I think that's a dangerous idea. You know, in Kentucky in the early 90s, Homophobia was the air one breathed. There was nothing else to make a self out of. So, you know, the whole shape of my narrator's life, like the whole shape of my life, is one that is formed around this wound that was inflicted on him when he was young. I'm interested then in the question, like, if we give up the idea that we should try to cleanse that away, that we should try to repress that feeling, that we should make it unspeakable, if instead we sort of say, well, what can we do with it? And how can I make, you know, that wound around which I've had to form my life, how can I make that something that, you know, does not just block me or stymie me or act in a kind of negative way? How can I turn it into something productive? Well, I think one of the technologies, I think the narrator uses several technologies to try to effect that transformation. One of them is art. Another is sex. And, you know, one of the things that interests me in exploring, you know, and I wanted to write about sex in this book in sort of all of its changes. I wanted to write about sex in the context of a tender you know, long-standing relationship. I wanted to write about sex that is anonymous in the context of cruising. And I wanted to write about, you know, this particular form of sex, sadomasochism, that makes explicit structures of power that I think are always latent in any of our encounters with other human beings. And to see how that in and of itself can be a kind of technology for transformation, where if the very language, the very words that were used as weapons against the narrator in his childhood, if he can take those words, take those words of abuse and put them in the aesthetic frame that is a sadomasochistic encounter and transform them into something that can be productive of pleasure, something that can be productive of sociality, of forming affective bonds. That seems to me an extraordinary technique of survival. And it was something I wanted to explore in the book. I wanted to expand on that because there is, I mean, there is sex in what belongs to you, but it's a real step up in, in cleanness in terms of the, the sort of explicitness, particularly. And um, the two chapters in particular that where the, there is sadomasochistic sex, as you mentioned briefly in the first half, sort of act as a, as a mirror to the, the three stories in the middle, which is about a, a sort of relatively straightforward monogamous relationship with R. They are both intense for the reader, but also obviously quite literally punishing for the narrator in that story. Let's talk a little bit more about why you wanted to, I mean, I guess I say again, be as explicit as these two stories are. 
Well, so I am interested in sex as an experience. Sex seems to me a kind of privileged moment of humanness for a lot of reasons. It seems to me one of our most charged forms of communication. And so it seems to me something that literature is primed to explore. And, you know, I guess what interests me, I am interested in explicitness and I'm interested in explicitly putting the sexual body in art and especially the queer sexual body and making that body generative of beauty and making a claim for that body's value. Um, which I think anytime we make art out of something, we're making a claim about its value and about its relationship with beauty. So in that sense, you know, I am interested in explicitness, but in another sense, it's not really just explicitness that interests me. It's instead explicitness paired with the particular kind of sentence that I'm attracted to. You know, I think thanks to the internet, our culture is inundated in images of explicitness and images of sexual bodies. But it very often seems to me that personhood has been expunged from those images. When I look at a lot of, you know, the pornography that circulates online, you know, I'm not at all anti-pornography, but it does seem to me that consciousness, these bodies are being represented as though they don't have consciousness. These bodies are being represented as though they're objects. I think literature is the best technology we have for the communication of consciousness. And in particular, the kind of sentence that I'm drawn to and this expansive syntax and a kind of sentence that at once wants to sort of plunge forward, but also circle back and ask questions and make corrections. That's a sentence with a history. It's a sentence that, you know, I think one can trace back to devotional writers in the 17th century or to Montaigne or to Proust and Henry James and Virginia Woolf and James Baldwin. It's a technology for the production of consciousness, for the production of inwardness. And so it was the combination of explicitness and this technology for producing inwardness that seemed to me exciting. It seemed to me like, in exciting, I think of art, art is a kind of research, you know, we are doing research into the human. And that seemed to me an exciting avenue of research and one that I wasn't sure I had seen adequately explored. On a more general level, why do you think we're so weird? I guess just in the English speaking world, I, I, I presume it is in, in literature, why we're so weird about the depiction of sex in this country? I don't know to what extent you're familiar with it over there but in this country there is this thing the bad sex awards which is i think an absolutely ludicrous and embarrassing thing to exist it seems that such a huge area of of human existence should not be something that we should be embarrassed to write about yeah i absolutely agree and especially in a language that has the great gift of its earliest geniuses chaucer and shakespeare you know incorporating the whole vocabulary of the sexual body into the texture of poetic discourse it's utterly bizarre to me to suggest that such a huge territory of human feeling and experience should be off limits to art and you know the bad sex award which i absolutely agree with you i think it's like utterly pathetic exercise of humiliation, um, you know, to point fingers at someone who is trying to do serious work and to take a couple of phrases out of context and, you know, set them up to be laughed at. Well, I think that's pretty horrifying. And I think, you know, like all bullying, which I think is all it is, um, it's intended to silence people. I think queer people are very familiar with that. My whole life, people have been telling me not to talk about things I might want to talk about. People have told me that I should feel ashamed for thinking that sexual life and the sexual life of queer people is worthy of the peculiar dignity that art can bestow. I think one of the many gifts that being queer has given me is a kind 
kind of immunity to that sense. I've said many times, and I try every time I have a chance to say so publicly, I try to say how eager I am to win the Bad Sex Award, how much I wish they would award it to me, because I will go to their silly little dinner, and I will relish the opportunity to tell them to their faces what absolute assholes they are. Oh, well, unfortunately, I don't think there's any danger of you winning it, to be honest. Well, we can cross our fingers. <laughs> Just one more thing from me, and then I'll, I'll ask you to, to read a bit of cleanness for us, if you would. I was also interested in the um, the striking sort of power relationships in the book. I mean, most obviously in the, the depictions of sadomasochistic sex in those two chapters in cleanness, but thinking right back to, to what belongs to you as well. And on first being introduced to to Mitko, I was sort of worried about the concept of, you know, a, a sort of richer American picking up this Bulgarian guy who may be doing what he's doing because, you know, he's a bit of a hustler, he needs to survive. And then it's sort of brilliant how those dynamics keep switching in that he's, you know, a much more physically intimidating man who becomes threatening at times. There is always this sort of like edge of of sort of bullying or blackmail over that relationship and i just wanted to talk a bit more about that sort of exploration of of those sort of power dynamics in the in the books yeah so i mean one of the things that interests me one of the things that i think art is for is to try to explore in the fullness of their complexity situations relationships dynamics that escape all of my other means for meaning making. So if I can make an argument about something, if I can pronounce a verdict about something, if I'm sure and can articulate what I feel about something or a moral judgment about something, I don't need to make art about it. I'm interested in art that, I mean, kind of the only art that really interests me is art that is intended. Its intention is to explore what we, this word that we toss around a lot now in the discourse, things that are problematic. To me, you know, I take it as a starting point that sort of any human relationship is problematic and all the more so when it is a relationship that is occurring across gulfs of privilege, gulfs of nationality, gulfs of you know, the, the narrator of these books is not in any way wealthy, but he does have a kind of material safety, security that someone like Mikko does not have. You know, and it does seem to me that the reality of those kinds of relationships is always hugely more complicated than the easy stories we tell about them, the sort of certain stories we tell about them in the culture. And I do think any relationship is made up of dynamics of power. I'm interested in exploring those dynamics of power. I'm interested in exploring how those are more fluid and how they change and how there's a quicksilver nature about them than they seem to be in the stories we sometimes tell. And then I'm also very interested in moments where it seems that even if a relationship is caught in such structures, there is no getting away from Mitko and the narrator and what belongs to you. There is no getting away from the fact that the narrator is an American and you know that he has a kind of access to mobility that Mitko does not have. There's no getting away from that. But even within those structures, these moments where there is a kind of human surplus, where they don't get to escape those structures but to a certain extent, they exceed those structures. Those are moments that really fascinate me and moments that, you know, in some way, I feel like from the beginning of What Belongs to You, we know how that relationship will end. We know the sort of dynamics that relationship is caught in. Um, we know that it's an impossible relationship. 
I was interested in the book in exploring moments at which these two people and what they feel for each other seems to exceed the structure in which they're caught, moments in which everything seems possible. And to explore those moments, even if they're transient, even if they're bounded, even if we know they can't last, to explore them in a way that shows what they are, which is full of value, um, full of humanity, full of all of the things I think art, we sort of turn to art to explore. To finish off then, can I get you to read us a bit? Sure, I'll be so happy to. I thought I might read something from the central chapter of the book, which is called The Frog King. And all you need to know is that this is one of the chapters that's concerned with the narrator's relationship with R, who is a Portuguese university student in Bulgaria on exchange. And he's closeted, R is closeted, and this has been a challenge for their relationship. But they um, they get to spend winter break together. It's their only experience of getting to live together. And I wanted to write a story of happiness, and this is how it begins. It was too early for there to be so much light so that when I woke, my first thought was of snow. We had pulled the drapes before sleeping, but they did almost nothing to darken the room. The snow caught scraps from street lamps and neon and cast them back up. It was bright enough to see R still sleeping beside me, cocooned in the blanket I had bought after the first night we spent together, when I woke shivering to find him bound tight in the comforter we were sharing, swaddled beside me. He repeated the word all that day, apropos of nothing, swaddled, swaddled. He had never heard it before. The sound of it made him laugh. He would sleep for hours still. If I let him, he would sleep the whole day. He loved to sleep in a way I didn't, sliding into it at every chance, whereas almost always I slept poorly, uneasily. I woke finally with a sense of relief. He complained if I woke him. I'm on holiday, he would say. Let me sleep. But he complained more if I let him sleep too long. We only had ten days together, his winter vacation, which he had decided to spend in Sofia while everyone else he knew went home. Mornings were my time to work, to spend with my books and my writing, my time to be alone. I would get up soon, but for now I kept looking at him, his face bearded and dark, smoothed out by sleep. It was all I could do not to touch it as I did often when he was awake, cupping his cheek in my palm or reaching around the curve of his skull. He had shaved his head at the end of the semester. I liked to run my hand around and around it until he ducked and told me to stop, annoyed but laughing too. Even annoyance was part of the pleasure we took in each other. We were that early in love. I was still groggy with sleep when I turned into the main room and I stood in uncomprehending for a moment before I realized that R had rearranged things in the night. He had moved the table to the middle of the room and had placed my winter boots on top of it beside the little tree we had bought earlier that week. Sticking up from the boots, there were packages wrapped in newspaper, his Christmas gifts for me. He must have hidden them somewhere after he arrived. He must have gotten out of bed in the night, careful not to wake me. He must have been quiet as he moved the furniture. I caught my breath at it. I felt a weird pressure and heat climb my throat. I felt like my heart would burst. Those were the words for it, the hackneyed phrase, and I was grateful for them. They were a container for what I felt proof of its commonness. I was grateful for that, too, the commonness of my feeling. I felt some stubborn strangeness in me ease. I felt like part of the human race.
So I've been talking to Garth Greenwell. We've been talking about his latest book, Cleanness, which is out now in the US from FSG and Picador in the UK. Garth, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Thanks so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.